your Bibles to Exodus chapter 4. Notice in this song, I could sing your love forever. Brad conveniently left off the part about dancing. Uh, skip that verse. <laughs> He's trying to keep his job. David danced to the Lord, right? It's in the Bible. We're okay with that? All right. Good. I'm going to be all right. Take a deep breath. It's for Jesus. It's not at a high school prom. You'll be all right. Exodus chapter 4, verse number 17. Exodus 4, 17. We do have our notes in the Bible app. Just want to let you know that we will not have PowerPoint behind us as far as points going through. It is a little harder as we're getting into story. We're telling narrative. It's a little harder to come with an outline, perhaps. So we're trying to keep it in a story format. So sometimes we'll have something up there for you, possibly in the application slide. But besides that, we're just walking through the text. We'll be in Exodus 4, 17, and we'll work our way down through, sorry, 4, 18, work our way down through chapter 6, verse 30. If you're here last week, we just finished our moment on the backside of the mountain. God spoke to Moses from the burning bush. Moses realizes that he's unworthy. He's unable. He lived in unbelief, and eventually he's just unwilling. God, in grace, pushes Moses on. He gives him a helper, gives him his brother Aaron to go with him on the task and tells Moses and Aaron, get to work. Now, I'm sure you and I have been put in positions where we're asked to do something you do not want to do. You ever been asked to do something you do not want to do? I'm sure our children here that had to do chores over this week were never asked to do something that they did not want to do. I would wager, though, that of the things that we've been asked to do, few things have compared as to what Moses has been asked to do, as far as in its scope and its impact. The entire nation of Israel is still stuck in slavery. And God says, Moses, I want you to be my mouthpiece to lead them out. Now, Moses is not going to be doing the wonders and the plagues. The Lord will take care of all that. But he's choosing to use someone, Moses, your God. So in Exodus 4, 18 through 20, we see with much riding on the line, Moses takes his first step. And often that's the hardest step in obedience. Take the first one. The first step, child, listening to your parent about go cleaning your room. The best step towards obedience is turning from them. And taking your first step towards your room. It's a good step. And then you take the next one. And you take the next one. Then you get in the room, then you believe it or not, you start putting things away. Not under your bed. But it's the first step towards obedience. Sometimes that's the hardest one. When you don't want to do it. But you know you should do it. Moses takes his first step. He leaves the burning bush. He goes straight back to his family. And requests in 418 from the head of his home, Jethro, the, his father-in-law, he asked, can I leave and go see my family? In verse 19, the Lord gives Moses a boost by informing him, the people that are seeking you, Moses, are dead. Those that are seeking you, they're gone. Perhaps this is a boon for him, an encouragement. And maybe that's, maybe, we don't know, maybe that is a reason why Moses feared returning. Because when he left, Pharaoh was seeking to kill him. And he thought, if I return back, the guy's going to try to kill me anyways. The Lord encourages them, hey, the people that are seeking you to kill you are, are gone. In 420, Moses' family pack up their bags and head to Egypt. Now look at 421. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. Speaking of 
dropping the staff, turning it to snake, putting your hand inside the leprosy aspect, and also pouring out water from the Nile, turning it into blood. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will not let you go. Now, we need to pause here, because some of us are going to have consternation over this phrase, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. I want to discuss this idea. In Exodus 9.16, after the sixth plague, the Lord tells Pharaoh through Moses, he is raising Pharaoh up to show his power, and so that God's name might be proclaimed throughout all the earth. To accomplish this, Along with the deliverance of his people, the Lord will calcify an already depraved heart. We'll see in chapter 5 when Pharaoh asks, who is the Lord? So Moses comes to talk to him, and we'll see this in a little bit. He'll say, who is the Lord that I should obey him? I don't know who you're talking about. I could care less to follow him. The Lord's going to calcify that heart that's already set in that direction. In that sense, he will fix the rudder of Pharaoh's heart for this time, for a purpose. His heart's going to be set on this in defiance of the Lord until the Lord can not just deliver his people, but also make sure his name is proclaimed throughout all the world, which we will see will happen. So moving on, look at verse number 22. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Here the Lord reminds Moses of all he's going to do and what he's supposed to say to Pharaoh. And in these, this verse here, we see four things, verses 22 and 23. First, we see the premise behind the command. The Lord tells Moses, Israel is my firstborn. This is a key statement in the book of Exodus. Israel is my firstborn. This is my son. That's the premise behind everything that's happening here. Then we have a problem. Well, what's the problem? If Israel's his firstborn, Israel's currently in shackles. Israel's currently enslaved. They are my firstborn. That's the premise. The problem is they are enslaved. And then we have next a promise to Pharaoh. What's the promise that he makes to Pharaoh? He says, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn. The pharaohs of Egypt have enslaved God's firstborn. What have they done to the sons of Israel? You recall? They were told, the midwives in chapter 1, to kill the sons of Israel. They were told at the end of chapter 1, the beginning of chapter 2, to take the children and cast them into the Nile to kill them. You've been killing my sons. And if you don't obey me, it's coming back to you. Your son will be next. So we had a premise, Israel is God's firstborn, a problem, Israel is held in change, a promise, let my firstborn go or else, and now a purpose. For what purpose will God deliver his people? I know I've mentioned this purpose over the last coming weeks, but it needs to be said as often as we can say it, God delivers his people, why? What does he say in the text here, deliver them so that they might serve him. God did not deliver Israel from slavery so that they might live the Israeli dream of freedom. No. I will deliver you from Pharaoh so that you might serve me. You have a new purpose. 
I am yours. You are mine. There's this constant, constant connection through this in Scripture that there are two masters. You can be enslaved to the one or to the other. Whom will you serve? That's why Joshua says, choose this day whom you will serve. Will you allow Satan and sin and your flesh to reign over your body and send you on a path straight to hell? Or will you be chained to the Savior who makes you his son and gives you an inheritance forever and says, I will be with you forever and ever, and I will be your inheritance? Who is your master? And God delivers them for a purpose, that you might serve me. That's what it says in the text. So God shares this message after this amazing message from the Lord. Have you been reading ahead? It's an amazingly peculiar story to follow. Now some of you in here like to write. I would venture to guess if you were writing this story, you'd not put the next couple verses in here. Do you, do you see where we're going here if you've read through? Now how many honestly would ask in your head, what on earth is going on? Anybody? Come on. Thank you. Thank you. The rest of you, we'll talk about lying later. You can repent of that later at the end of the message. You're like, sweet mother of Mary, what is happening? What, who, who chose what? Why are we putting this in here? What is going on? Just go to Egypt already. Just get there. So you have in this amazing message, this amazingly peculiar story, Moses' wife Zipporah stopped at a Motel 8 on the way. And as always happens in a Motel 8, something bad happens. So they're sitting there going, what on earth is going on? And the Lord encounters, in Exodus 4, 24 through 26, the Lord encounters Moses. And it seems, now there are a lot of uncertainties in this text. Besides the oddity of it, there are a lot of uncertainties. It seems, let me just give you my best understanding of what's going on. It seems that the Lord's meeting Moses, and Moses is almost at death's door, and the Lord is doing this. Why? There's a question. His wife, Zipporah, knows why. How? We do not know. But she knows the answer to the solution is to circumcise their son. At what age, we don't know. How uncomfortable this was for everybody at that moment, why? What exactly all took place, I will not describe here in detail. It's probably best for all of us. But this takes place, and you're going, what on earth? What, what on earth is going on? Why indeed? In Genesis 17, 14, God told Abraham, every, every male child needs to be circumcised. It is a physical sign pointing to a spiritual picture that you have been changed. There's a lot we can go into that. We're not going to get to circumcision in the depths of this and how that works in the New Testament. We get this into another day. But as we would say of baptism, that a physical sign is showing what has changed. There's the same kind of sense. So you get that idea? So we're not talking apples and apples. Just trying to give you an idea of what is happening here. But the Lord tells Moses, this needs to happen. Obviously, Moses did not follow through. 
he has two boys. We see here one at least is circumcised, perhaps both. We don't know for sure if both ended up having this process done. We don't know if this is firstborn or the second. If it is the firstborn, it amazingly fits the context of our, of our text here. God just spoke about Israel being his firstborn. Pharaoh, if you don't obey and you don't follow me, you're going to lose your firstborn. But Moses trying to lead his firstborn can't even lead his firstborn into the basic steps of obedience to God. There is the crux of the matter. Why circumcision? It's the basic thing any believing parent would have done at this time. A basic step. Moses, how on earth are you going to lead God's son out of Egypt when you can't even lead your own child? Oof. Mom and dad, you hearing this with me? That's a big oof, isn't it? There's a lot of application in a weird text about circumcision for you and I. In 427, let's move on from that through 31. We see the journey continues. Aaron and Moses meet up, which if you recall, God tells Moses what happened back in 414. They meet up, they head back to Egypt in 430 through 31. They meet with the elders of Israel, and look at what happens in 431. And the people believed. It's like a rare occurrence that we see in the next couple books that we'll see in the book of the Bible. The people believed. They believed. This is amazing. Just like God said they would. They believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, when they had seen what they, he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and they worshiped. They saw the signs and works of God. They heard the word of God, and what did they do? They believed and they worshiped. Great practice for you and I. Back in 4.1, Moses told God, what did he tell him? What did Moses tell God back in 4.1? They will not believe me. Out of the two people in the conversation, who was proven to be right? Moses or the Lord? The Lord. Out of the two in the conversation, who's omniscient and who's not? The Lord. Again, helpful for reminders for you and I. In our conversation with the Lord, because Moses is going to have another one later on. And you're going to be like, I don't know that you could say that in prayer to Jesus. And he's going to say it. God is proven true time and time again. His word is right. So here we go. Moses and Aaron finally make it to Pharaoh in chapter 5. Look over at Exodus chapter 5, and they go before Pharaoh in verse 1. They say, let my people go that they may hold a feast in the wilderness. And how does Pharaoh respond in 5-2? Pharaoh says, who is the Lord? Who is Jehovah? I could care less. Who's the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Let me think about your question. Mm, no. So, I don't know who you're talking about. I don't know who Jehovah is. We got plenty of gods around here in Egypt. Pharaoh counted to be one of them. We don't know who you're talking about. And our gods rule and reign in this home. See you later. Take a hike. 
Moses and Aaron don't back down yet. So in 5.3, Moses and Aaron say, The God of Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey to the wilderness that we may sacrifice the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. We get fair a little more info. The reason why we're asking so urgently, because if we don't obey, as Moses just found out, right? If you're not obeying the Lord, it doesn't go well. Hey, this is going to happen to us, and so we need to go obey. That's why we're so urgent in front of you. The king of Egypt says in verse number four, Moses and Aaron, what, what are you trying to do here? He goes, why on earth do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. Now, mom and dad, have you ever had the situation happen where your child has a chore and they, they pause the chore midstream to ask you a very pressing question and they keep coming back to ask the question again and again or it's like bedtime and all the questions they have for solving the universe are coming up now just go to bed Pharaoh get back to work what on earth are you doing get back to work this kind of nod it seems at Pharaoh because in 5, 7 through 9, it seems like he could not let this go, that they're fearful of this Jehovah God. And Pharaoh, it seems, thinks this is misplaced fear. Whom should they be fearing? Pharaoh's like, me. And so he calls in the taskmasters in 5, 7 through 9. He says, hey, these Israelites that are building stuff with, with these bricks and and making stuff for us with the bricks that they're making, don't give them what they need to make these bricks. Because these turkeys just came in asking for a religious holiday. Uh, Pass. And if they have time for a religious holiday, they got time to go find more stuff. So let them go find more stuff. So without explanation, in 5, 10 through 13, the taskmasters, taskmasters make Israel go make bricks without giving them necessary components like, like uh, stubble and straw. So the people of Israel are scattered around Egypt trying to find the stubble and straw. And verse 13, they're still, the quota, the taskmaster is still expecting the same quota. Go find the stubble and straw, make the same amount of bricks. And they're kind of like Buddy the Elf realizing, making extra sketches, I'm not going to meet my quota today. I'm going to be short more than 915. And so they're sitting here working through this, going, We're, this is not good. And it's not a joke because it goes from bad to worse. We see they start getting beaten. Look at verse 14. The foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? This is going on, it seems like, for two days at the minimum. So 515 through 18, they realize we're in a pickle. We're getting beaten for not accomplishing our quota. That's based off them giving us all, their all this other stuff. What are we going to do? On top of that, they still don't know why. Why on earth are we getting beaten? Why did you change, why did you change everything overnight? They still don't know. So in 516, they point this out. Hey, slave master person, you can't expect us to make the same amount of bricks without giving us the stuff to make the bricks. So the fault's not with us. The fault's with you. 517 comes in, and they find out why this is happening. Look at 517. But he said, you are idle. 
you are idle, that is why you say, let us go sacrifice to the Lord. Apparently, you guys have sent an envoy to Pharaoh asking for a religious holiday. Get back to work. You guys got all the spare time. We're going to use it. Now put yourself in the shoes of these Israelite leaders. You've been running around Egypt trying to make this stuff happen. You're still getting beaten regardless. You don't know why they're doing this, and all of a sudden you know why now. Moses and Aaron. Those clowns were in here a couple days ago talking about deliverance. They're going to get us killed. Have you ever been the cause of someone else's pain? In the sports world, this happens often. You ever, you ever had this in, in sports practice where somebody decides they're not going to run the lines the way they should? Remember these days? And all of a sudden, your coach thinks, oh, hey, Sparky over here doesn't think he needs to run hard. And what happens to the entire team? Take another lap, pals. Do another line drill. And what does the team do? They rally around uncomfortably, Sparky. You better get your act together because we're not going to keep doing this. Right? And that's exactly what the coach wants. Well, the Israelite leaders, they come around. Who do they find? Moses and Aaron. What are you guys doing? You're going to get us killed. And so... In this process, look at verse 21. They said, the Lord look on you and judge. You've made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants. Now put a sword in their hand to kill us. What on earth have you done? Now put yourself in Moses and Aaron's shoes. This isn't the news you wanted. So in 3.9, and we could look back at 3.19 and 4.21, where God told Moses this was going to happen. He said, right, Pharaoh's not just going to go like, oh, you know what? You're right. Go ahead and go. See you later. He's not going to let them out unless provoked through a strong hand. God already told Moses this. And we could throw the red flag and we could bring up HD instant replay and let, hey, Moses, remember when? But Moses is looking at his countrymen, his brothers. They're bruised, they're beaten, they're bloody. And he's feeling awfully responsible at this point in time. How does Moses respond at 522? Then Moses turned to the Lord. This is a fantastic response to start. Turn to the Lord and said, now we have some uncomfortable things here, oh Lord why have you who is he speaking to the Lord, why have you done evil to this people oof why did you ever send me for since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people and you have not delivered your people at all. There is good in here. Moses turned to the Lord. And there are troubling things. And some of you recall in our study in Psalms that there are in the Bible raw emotions. There are. Do you know why? Because it's real life. It's real life. And so you'd think that we would see in verse number 24, and then Moses died. He was smote by the Lord. He's gone. No, that's not what happened. 
Lord, listen to these comments and response. And we'll get to that first, but first you've got to see Moses contends four things with the Lord in his prayer. Four problems I have, God, with how you're handling the situation around me. First, you have wronged your people. Oh, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Second, you were wrong in sending me. Why ever did you send me? This is one of the first references we have in history of, I told you so. Right? I told you this was not going to go the way you thought. Third, God's plan is ineffective. This plan stinks. For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's done evil. And finally, Moses reminds the Lord, he's failed to keep his word. You have not delivered your people at all. Again, and the Lord smote him, and we moved on. No, the Lord gives grace. God doesn't say, you knucklehead, I told you. God doesn't throw his words back in his face. I told you this was going to happen. You should have been ready for this. You should have prepared the people for this. Now look what the Lord says in 6.1. But the Lord says to Moses, now you shall see. What I will do to Pharaoh with a strong hand, he will send them out with a strong hand. He'll drive them out of this land. And Moses is like, I've heard this story before. And before Moses can get a word out, it seems the Lord continues. In verse number 2. And before we get to verse number 2, because verse 2 through 8, you need to see verse 2 through 8. We do not have all the time to give you all the glorious news that's in verse 2 through 8, but it's fantastic. As we're reading through verses 2 through 8 of chapter 6, look for two phrases that are used often. I am the Lord, look for that, and the phrase, I will. Okay, so as we're reading through here, look for the phrase, I am the Lord, and look for the phrase, I will. God spoke to Moses and said, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Now there's, what does he mean by that? Does that mean they did not know who Jehovah God was? They knew him? Did they not know him by this name? Or did they not know what this name meant or the breadth of it? What we know is that the Lord's revealing to himself to Moses in a way he had not yet to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. By, by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, in the land in which they were sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of my people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slave. I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. And now we get from this past, I have to I will. I will bring you out under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you for possession. I am the Lord. Man, what a fantastic section. Just God, just bam, promise, bam, promise, bam, promise coming at you. This is who I am. This is what I have done. Here's what I'm about ready to do. And look at this section. It has two bookends to it. You see, notice how it starts in 6-2 and how it ends. What is it based on? How does it start and how does it end? Verse 2, I am the Lord. How does it end? I am the Lord. Who we are, what we do, and how we live is based on who God is. He is 
is Jehovah God. He is the great I am. He just is. And we respond, you are. You are. Based off him being he is, the only he is, the one, the great I am, then we believe his word. He will do what he said he would do. Because he has done this in the past. He will do this in the future. I believe it. I believe. Moses is reassured in 6-9. So he goes and tells the leaders of Israel what the Lord has said and gets a different response this time. Instead of bowing their head in worship, mm -mm, they're shaking their heads. They're thinking this message isn't worth it. No. No, I don't think so. In 6, 10 through 13, the Lord tells Moses to head back over to Pharaoh. Let's restart this conversation up. Moses is like, if, if, if the people won't believe me, how's Pharaoh going to believe me? Now one might think the very next scene is, again, if we're writing the story, the very next scene would be where? In Pharaoh's home. Or, better option, a genealogy. Is that what you were thinking? No? And then to follow the genealogy, let's recap what we just said here in the last few verses, which is exactly what takes place. So why the genealogy to follow in 614 through 25? It partially mention it mentions the first two children of Israel, Reuben and Simeon, and their sons. And then it gets to the third son, Levi, and completely leaves off the other nine. This is intentional. Moses is establishing, it's again reading, so when Jesus spoke of the book of Moses, the book, the first five are one book, Moses is establishing the priesthood and the line of the priests going through Aaron at this point in time. So before he gets into the plagues, and the people of Israel are being led out, and we get into uh, making the tabernacle and all that's going to come, we're going to pause here real quick to see that there is a priestly line that Israel is to follow spiritually as they are led physically. Does that make sense? So it's not useless random information. And if you like following genealogies, let me encourage you to look at, uh, let's see here, 623. Good thing. And find out who Aaron's wife, the daughter of Minadab, is sister of Nashon. She's marrying in to the tribe of Judah. And how's that work? That Judah and Aaron, the Levite, priest, king, all this all works. Study it out for yourself. It's pretty fun. Moving on. So we have the very end this recap in 626 through 630. Aaron says, these are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring out the people. Like, I thought we just went through this. We did. But Moses is recapturing for the audience, his reader, this is who we're speaking about here. In case there's any question, let me remind you who's getting ready to go see what line they're from, what's about ready to take place. That gets us Exodus 418 through 630. We've covered a lot of stuff. We've covered some odd stuff. Some highs, and some lows. So what can we take away, and what does all this mean for us today? And let me first, let me talk to those here that claim to know Jesus as their Savior. First off, do you recall that odd story about circumcision? And the point was, Moses, how are you going to lead God's son out of Egypt when you're not even leading your own family in obedience to me? Christian mom, dad, grandparent, guardian, are you leading your families in obedience to the Lord? families in obedience to the Lord. How do you do that? Just in word? 
Go read your Bible. Or do you do it also in action? You show them. How do you show your child to be faithful to church? How do you teach them to love the Lord? We cannot force faith into the hearts of our children. Anymore, you can shove broccoli down the throat of an 18-month-old. You can try as you want. It may not work. And we can't force faith into the hearts of our children. But while they're under our roof, while they're under our care, we can do everything we can to show them the importance and necessity of loving the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Think of all you've done, mom and dad, grandma, grandparents, guardians. Think of all you have done, look at me, to ensure your child knows how to read, write, and act. You place them in the care of somebody if you send them to school for how many hours a day? If you're teaching them yourself, how many hours have you put in that? Just to read, write, and act. Let me ask, let me remind you, when they get to heaven, Jesus will not ask you, do you know how to read, write, and add? Now, are these helpful for them? Absolutely. Absolutely. Is it essential? When they stand before the Lord of glory, those are the three questions, because there have been plenty of people in history that weren't able to read, write, or add that have impacted life upon life upon life. Now, again, I'm for education. So my wife here, so my wife's not here today, she would die because she's a first grade teacher. She loves education. I'm for education. But I remind you, keep the primary the primary. Think of how much time you put into your child. Have you done your homework? Have you practiced the piano? And you stay after them on hobbies. Think about how much work you put in, mom and dad, to getting your team, your child to love your team. When they were little, you dressed them in your gear. How many games have you taken them to? How much money have you spent trying to get them to cheer for your squad that's going to lose the next game? I cheer for the Lions. And yet my kids, in love, Cheer them on with me as we watch them lose. All the time we spent. The time we spent. Read, write, add, play, practice, practice, practice. Where's God in any of this basic steps? Well, they're going to get a scholarship. Who cares if their school bill is paid for if they don't love the Lord? Who cares? We can get through a school debt if their heart is solely set on Jesus. Mom and dad, grandma, grandparents, up your game. Do the basics. Just the simple basics. I'm not asking you to give your life over to go to Tanisha. But if God calls, go. Bring them to church as often as you can. Instill in their heart the word of God. 
pray with them, read with them over and over and over again. If you're going to have them practice anything, may it be here first. And do not let that go until they leave your home. I don't care if they're 14, 15, 16, and they're fighting it. Do not let it go. Do all you can to instill this in them. You cannot force it. But do everything you can to put that carrot in front of their face. Are you doing the basics? 4.31, we see the people of Israel saw the wonders of Moses showed them, and they heard God's word, and they worshiped. When you see God work, when you hear God's word, how do you respond? Is it worship? Meh. Going along with the first sign of opposition in 6-9. Right? The people are worshiping in 431 in chapter 6, verse number 9. What's the first thing? They, they, they get opposition. And what do they do? I don't believe that. That's not proven true in my what? In my experience. Have you ever felt like this? My experience tells me that's not going to work. Christians, I beg you, please do not go this route of how you feel dictating the truth of Scripture. The Lord may allow you to go through hard times. He allowed His Son to go through hard times, but with purpose. Why? Has he allowed them to go through slavery at this point in time so that he might lead them out, not just to deliver them, but that the world may know that he is the Lord. There's a greater purpose being cooked up by the Lord. You must remain faithful. Remain faithful to the word. Next, we see when trouble came, Moses immediately, immediately went to the Lord in prayer. Christian, when life throws you a curveball, do you go to God? You can say, well, I don't think Moses should have said what he said. But Moses at least went. As was his practice. That's what he did. He went to the Lord. It was raw. It was unfiltered. You're like, well, I don't know if I would have said it like that. And maybe not. But at least he was being honest with the Lord. And the Lord spoke back to him. And he knew he's right. And he followed him. Last, based on what we learn about God today, will you join me in praising God? for who he is and what he has done. Think back through what we learned. He tells Moses and Aaron what would come, and it did. Uh, he tells Moses the elders would believe, and they did. He told Moses Pharaoh wouldn't let Israel go easily, and he did it. God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. His word is true. Praise our God for being the faithful one, the true one. Then in 6, 2 through 8, we see God is the great I am. He has appeared. He has established a covenant with his people. He promised to bring them out. We'll see he does do that. He is their deliverer, verse 6. He's their redeemer in 6, 6. He makes sinners his children. He makes sinners his people in 6, 7. He allows sinners to know him in chapter 6, verse 7. And he gives them that which they do not deserve in 6, 8. Christian, will you join me in praising this God? As awful as we may feel, you know, mom and dad, we may look and go, you know, I need to do a better job. Amen. Well, join me, me, as a failing parent, join me in repentance. But as soon as we're done repenting, turn and praise God that he gives grace. And that by faith, we can do the job we need to do today. Have you failed as a mom and dad at 1 o'clock today? No. Hasn't come. By God's grace, we can be what we need to be. 
But let's praise our great God for allowing us the grace and mercy that we do not deserve. And he gives it in abundance. It's amazing to see how great our God is in this text in 6238. Read through this as time goes on this week. Lastly, friend, if you are here, I want you to understand a small phrase in Exodus 6, verse number 4. In Exodus 6, 4, God tells Abraham, I also established my covenant with them to give them the land. God established his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This covenant, this unbreakable promise of God was to give Abraham and his descendants a land, a seed, and a blessing to all nations. You can read about this in Genesis chapter 15. The land is the promised land. And coincidentally, whether you believe it or not, coincidentally, Israel is in the promised land today and has been since 1948. Out of all places they put them, happens to be there, the place God promised them. The third thing God promised them was a blessing to all nations. Well, how on earth can Israel be a blessing to all nations? And that comes back to the second one, the seed. Going back to the very first promise of good news, Genesis 3.15, where God promised Eve, through you, one is going to come that's going to crush the serpent's head. And we find out through Abraham that this line is going to come through. It's going to be a child of Abraham. It's going to be the one that will crush the serpent's head. He will destroy sin, death, and hell. He will give life. We find out at the end of Genesis, it's going to come not just through Abraham, but through a tribe called Judah. We find out in Numbers that this person that's coming from the tribe of Judah is also going to be a king. The scepter is not going to leave him. He's going to reign forever. We get to the book of, of 2 Samuel and we realize it's not just going to come through any kingship, but through the line of David. We get to the book of Isaiah and that this person from the line of David is going to be born of a virgin. And he's going to be called Emmanuel, meaning God with us. And he's going to be the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. But by the end of Isaiah, realize that this one that's coming, this mighty one, this holy God, holy man is going to have to die. He's going to be the suffering servant that will die for your sin and mine. He will take the sin that you and I deserve and he will place it upon himself and he will die the death. The Lord will place his wrath upon him and he will take his children. He will rise them up in the last day. This is the promise. This is the seed. This is the way the blessing comes to all nations. And we find out in the book of John, in the beginning, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. Glory was of the only begotten. God came down and was robed in flesh. He died the death that we do not deserve in his name. The died, died the death we deserve and he did not. And his name is Jesus. Friend, do you know him? He established his covenant. He will keep it and he has. He has. And as time goes on, it's only proven to be more true. Friend, do you know him? This covenant-keeping God, this promise-making God, what he says he will do, he will do. I beg you, I beg you, do not stay on the side with Pharaoh and defy his clean word. Come to him, where he makes those who do not deserve, he takes sinners and makes them his own, makes them his children. Gives them grace and mercy. Allows them to live with him forever. I encourage you to come to your Savior today. You can do so. You admit like you, like I, that we, we are sinners. You believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and you call on his name. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you have questions about how you can do that, please see myself, a Christian friend you came with. We'd love to talk with you. There is much in this text for us.
again, I, I encourage you, Christian, go back through 6, 2 through 8, and maybe just in your own personal devotion time, just praise the Lord. He delivered. Amen. He redeemed. Amen. He gives us what we don't deserve. Amen. He allows us to know him. Amen. On and on we can go. Praise God for his kindness to us. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Jesus, we come to you needy. We come to you asking that you would work in our hearts. You allow us to be where you'd have us be. Lord, for the moms and dads, the grandma, grandparents, the guardians in here that are taking care of kids right now, Lord, would you help us to do the basics as best we can. We'd strive to do everything we can to encourage our children to love you with their whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. For those whose children are now gone and they're now outside their home, Lord, would you give them wisdom to know how they can impart truth to their children as time goes on. Though they're not dependent on mom and dad now. That they might be advisors to the things of the Lord. Would you help us, Lord, in times when we are struggling to come to you as Moses did in prayer. When we see you work, would you help us to respond in worship and not to doubt when the first sign of opposition comes. Lord, would you allow us to praise you the way we should thankful for our God and who he is. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's